Oh, we hate to wait, don't we? I know, that was a little cheap trick there, Anya. We hate to wait. Waiting is like one of my least favorite things in the world. Have you ever had this experience? You, you call up your favorite restaurant to make a reservation, and what do they say on the phone? The first thing they say is, would you mind holding? Have you ever thought about answering that question? Yeah, I actually do mind holding. Would you mind just taking my reservation right? We hate to wait, right? Or how about this? Uh, you, you, go to the, uh, you go to church, and the preacher's up there, and he's preaching, and he just keeps talking and talking and talking, and you're wondering, like, how long is this going to go on, right? And if you've never had that experience, you, you just wait. You just wait. Or you go to the doctor's office, and they actually have an entire room dedicated to this. They call it the waiting room. Very original of them. Guess who's never in the waiting room, by the way, right? Who's never there? The doctor! He's never... Can you imagine if the doctor came to your house and waited? What? Okay, anyway. I don't know about you, but I am not very good at waiting at all. Uh, waiting's hard for me. I was thinking about how bad I am at waiting. Some of y'all are pretty bad at waiting too, though. Uh, I know this about you because some of you have families where you have a little tradition at Christmas. It's just too hard to wait those final 12 hours. So many of you have a tradition where you open at least one Christmas present on Christmas Eve. Anybody do this? Show of hands. Anybody do this? Come on. Yeah, yeah. Guilty. Guilty is charged. I'm so bad at this that my family actually had to start a new tradition this Thanksgiving. A couple weeks ago, my coffee grinder broke. And uh, in that moment, I felt like the psalmist, how long, O Lord, right? Like that was just kind of my, my prayer. And so I was hoping to get a coffee grinder for Christmas, but I was so, well, I was so upset by the lack of coffee grinder. My family had mercy on me and decided to give me my Christmas present of a new grinder for Thanksgiving, right? I thought the Lord has heard my prayers. This is, this is kind of, but we don't like to wait. Waiting is simply part of our lives. We live in a uh, world where we long for now, but the world around us says not yet. And no time of year do we experience this more than we do at Christmas. Uh, and particularly this Christmas, when waiting just seems to be, boy, the name of the game, doesn't it? Of course, we're used to waiting for Christmas presents. We're used to waiting in line at Target, or we used to wait in line at Target. Now we just wait for the Amazon truck to arrive. Uh, we wait for school to get out. We wait for life to get back to normal. Uh, but there are also difficult kinds of waiting. Waiting for a spouse, or waiting for a child, waiting to start a family, waiting for work to come, waiting for a diagnosis, waiting for pain or grief to finally let up, waiting for a prodigal child to come home, or waiting with a loved one who is nearing death. And when you have to wait like that, then the words of the psalmist become your words too. How long, O oh Lord? How long? One of my favorite things about the Bible is its honesty about the difficulty of waiting. And y'all, this is all over the scriptures. Scriptures are very honest, like this from the psalm psalmist who writes, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Sounds like that could have been written for 2020, couldn't it? And it's in the experience of this kind of waiting that we discover something important about the spiritual journey. Something that today I want to suggest is absolutely essential in our spiritual journey. 
See, today we're starting a new series called A Gift of Hope. And in this series, we're going to talk a lot about the hope that Jesus brings. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're, we're going to look at specific people that Jesus encountered throughout his earthly life and how he brought hope to each one of them. But today, I just want to step back and consider this idea of hope and something provocative that the scriptures tell us about it. Namely, namely, that there is some kind of spiritual connection between hope and waiting. I've titled the message today, Hope Comes to Those Who Wait. You know, there's an interesting thing in the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about hope. Uh, two major words in the Old Testament in Hebrew for hope, but the most common one is the word kavah. And uh, if you've heard me preach about Hebrew words, you might have heard me say this before, but the Hebrew language is a visual language. Every word is a word picture, and this is true of kavah. Kavah is the word for hope, but it comes from a root word that means cord. A kav is a cord in Hebrew. And so to kavah is to place the cord under tension and wait for it to be released. Or in this case, for Aaron's arms to give out, right? You get the picture of kavah? This is kavah. We, we, we're waiting for that tension, anticipating when it will finally... Well, that was supposed to be dramatic. That didn't work. The hook caught on my hand. Let me try that again. It's wait. You guys got to be ready for the dramatic moment. Okay, here we go. So we're waiting for it to be released and we go... Ah, yes, kavah, there you go. See, for the, in, in, for the Hebrews in the scriptures, this idea of hoping and waiting are intimately connected. In fact, we cannot have hope without learning how to wait. Look at how the prophet Micah connected this here. He says, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. I watch and hope for the Lord. I kavah for my Savior. Do you feel that? So today, as we jump into this first introduction week in our Advent series on hope, I want to look at a story from the Christmas story itself in the New Testament that illustrates this connection between waiting and hoping and see what we might have to learn about growing in hope ourselves this year in 2020. Uh, today's story comes from the second chapter of Luke. Caesar read it aloud for us, and it's actually a very important part of the Christmas story, although it actually comes much later after the manger, after the shepherds have gone, after the wise men have gone back to their homes. Mary and Joseph are left, and it's just them and the baby. And the story picks up right there in chapter 2, verse 21. Let me read to you again these first few lines. On the eighth day, the eighth day of what? Well, the eighth day after Jesus had been born. When it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Interesting. It was written in the law of the Lord that every firstborn male was to be consecrated to the Lord. You had to go to the temple to do that. And to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. See, Luke starts out with a bit of history for us, a bit of background. He wants us to understand why it is that Joseph and Mary have to go to Jerusalem. 
the law of Moses, or what is sometimes called the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, had two categories of laws that every Jewish person, like Joseph and Mary, had to follow. The first category were moral laws, things like don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't put marshmallows in your sweet potatoes for Thanksgiving. Moral right and wrong things that are clear in the scriptures. The Ten Commandments are good examples of these, right? We know this. But there was a second category of laws or regulations called purity laws or ritual laws. In order to enter the temple, in order to go to church in this day, you had to be clean ritually. And there were these laws about things you could eat and not eat, what you could touch and what you could not touch, and the kind of things you had to do to be ritually clean. And so 40 days after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph head to the temple to make the ritual sacrifice required by the law of Moses. Now, quick side note here. Let let me save you from saying something that sounds smart but really misses the point. Sometimes critics of Christianity will say that Christians like to pick and choose different verses from the Old Testament. They'll say, well, we, we like to, to require that we follow these about sexual ethics, but, but see, Christians don't actually require these dietary laws over here. And it sounds like it's smart. It sounds insightful, except that it's not the case at all. Actually, what the New Testament teaches is that Christians are still bound by the moral law of the Bible, but that Jesus did away with the ritual laws. In fact, Mark tells us that Jesus declared all foods clean, which is precisely why I plan to eat barbecue this afternoon while watching the Panthers win. Okay, so that's, thank you, Jesus. So Mary and Joseph, get this picture here, they load up the donkey, right? They load up their donkey, and they head out for Jerusalem, but they have no idea what is waiting for them in the temple. And here's where this story gets really, really interesting. Pick up with me here in the next verse. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. We're going to come back to that name in just a minute. Simeon was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him that the Holy, by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Savior or the one God would send to rescue his people. So picture this, picture this. There's this guy, Simeon, right? And he's well along in years. And somehow he knows, we don't know how he knows, but somehow he knows because the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he will not die before seeing God's Messiah, the Savior. And the picture is that he has been waiting for a very long time. Again, we don't know how long, but probably most of his adult life. And he's been waiting for God to make good on this promise. But Simeon, Simeon isn't the only one here waiting. There's another person Luke tells us about in the very next verses. A woman named Anna who has also been waiting Verse 36, there was also a prophet named Anna. She was very old. She was married seven years and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Now watch this, watch this, because I think this is just incredible. Joseph and Mary, they bring the baby to the temple, but then all of a sudden Luke shifts the focus off of the couple and the baby and onto this elderly pair, Simeon and Anna. 
And they've been waiting for a long time for God to fulfill his promise of sending this child. Again, we don't know exactly how long, but assuming Anna was married at the age of 15, roughly about right, she was married for seven years, and she's now 84, y'all. That means Anna and Simeon have been waiting for at least 62 years. Which means, which means, if they're on hold with Citibank, my credit card company's customer service, they're now the fifth caller in line, right? Now, why is Luke, why is he making such a big deal out of this old man and this old woman? What's he wanting us to see? Well, let me ask you this question. Maybe some of you are familiar with some of the stories from the books of Moses, the Old Testament. Can you think of another elderly couple who was waiting and waiting for a child? Does that bring to mind any names? Well, many of you might have already guessed it, but Luke is wanting us to remember this old couple, Abraham and Sarah, or before God changed their names, Abram and Sarai. If you're not familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, no worries. Here's my quick version. Aaron's Cliff Notes, you ready? God comes to Abram, and this is before God had changed his name, right? God comes to Abram and says, you are going to have a child, and your descendants are going to be so numerous, they're going to be too numerous to count. You're both in your 90s, uh, which meant that going to the mommy and me classes at the Y is going to be a little bit interesting. But nonetheless, Abraham chooses to trust God, and the Bible says it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness, the same word that Luke used to describe Simeon. Hmm. Well, the only, the only problem is Sarah uh, and Abraham, they get really tired of waiting. And so one day Sarah says, why don't you sleep with my Egyptian servant and maybe I can have a child through her? Abraham says, okay, that sounds like a good plan. And sure enough, Hagar gets pregnant. But it is a total train wreck, y'all. It's, it's like an episode from the Jersey Shore. Hagar gives Sarah the silent treatment. Uh, Sarah starts hating on Hagar. She goes to Abraham and says, you've got to kick Hagar out. She can't stay here anymore. Did, did you all know this is in the Bible? You, you should read your Bible. This is a good story. But my favorite part is when Sarah comes to Abraham and she says, look, Abraham, this is your fault. When Sarah knew Hagar was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. You see, the danger for people when they are waiting, the danger for you and me when we are in a season of waiting is that we would give up and we would take matters into our own hands. And when that happens, the outcome is almost always a Jersey Shore episode. I was reminded of this uh, this week uh, about a time in my life when I kind of got tired of waiting. I don't know if y'all remember this. It was a couple years ago. It was during the holidays, but Bluebell ice cream. Ever heard of Bluebell ice cream? Best ice cream in the world? Yes. Bluebell ice cream had to pull all of its ice cream from the shelves in the stores. They'd had a problem in their factory. And so everywhere you went, you could not get Bluebell. And I remember hearing a little rumor that CVS up on 150 had Bluebell ice cream. And so I was like, all right, I'm getting me some Bluebell, right? It's the holidays. So I, I go in and sure enough, there's Bluebell ice cream in the freezer. But the only problem is it's not actually in the rack. 
It, it's behind the rack stacked on a floor. You get the picture? Like I'm, I'm looking through the freezer door. There's no ice cream there, but I can see it down on the floor back there, right? So I, I did what most, most of you would do in that moment. I thought, you know, I'm kind of a reasonable kind of guy, and the ice cream's right there. It seems reasonable I should have blue. But I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So I opened the freezer door, and I climbed through the freezer into the storage room and back, got my blue belt, and climbed back out, looked around, made sure nobody was watching. We were free and clear. It was great, right? Until I got up to the counter, and the store clerk kept scanning over and over, and it kept going, ah, ah, ah. And she thought, and she said, I'm sorry, sir, apparently this ice cream's not for sale. Let me call my manager forward. Well, needless to say, we didn't wait for the manager either. And we got out of there like he split, right? You see, the danger for all of us in our waiting, the danger is that we might give up and we might try to take matters into our own hands. And this is exactly what happened to Abraham and Sarah. God had made a promise to them, a covenant. He was going to make good on that promise, but they gave up on their waiting. This is one, I think, where we begin to see the mystery of how waiting operates in our spiritual lives. Waiting, it turns out, is one of the most important tools God uses in our lives to grow in us hope. It's in the waiting that we learn patience. It's in the waiting that we learn to trust. It's in the waiting that we learn that we are not in control of the universe. And it's in the waiting that we learn to listen and to obey and to follow, to trust in God's goodness, to trust in God's timing. In other words, it's in the waiting that we learn to hope. So let me pause here for just a moment and ask you, where in your life right now does God have you in a season of waiting where you might be tempted to give up and take matters into your own hands? Is there a place in your life where you are waiting, but you are growing weary? Now, sometimes when I talk with folks about this spiritual principle of waiting, a, a practical question will come up, right? Well, Aaron, does this just mean that, that I should just be totally passive and never take action in my life? No, no, that's not what we are talking about here. The answer is that waiting is all about obedience. I drew this word to you. Uh, I, excuse, I drew his name out just a minute ago, but Simeon's name means one who listens and obeys. Isn't that interesting? See, waiting is about obedience, not passivity. It's about a refusal to climb through the freezer and grab the ice cream when you know it is not the time for it. So what do we do? Well, in situations like Abraham's, what we need to do if we're wondering, am I to act or am I to wait? We should ask ourselves this question. What would a person of good character, deep faith, and great wisdom do right now? Right? If your wife comes home and says, look, I know we're having trouble having a child, but um, there's this coworker of mine, what's your answer? Oh, come on, y'all scare me. Uh, no, the answer's no, right? If you, and if you don't know what to do, ask a person of good character, great faith, right? You see this? This is how we do this. Oh, man, y'all scare me sometimes. Waiting is not passive. It is trust. It is obedience. 
It's confidence that God is going to make good on the promise that he made us. That's where hope comes from. So let's get back to our passage because the ending of Simeon's story is quite remarkable. Remember, he's been waiting for 62 years, and then the day finally comes, and I just love this. I mean, it must have felt like Bluebell ice cream pulled up in a big truck into his driveway. Uh, Look at what happens here in the very next verse. Moved by the Spirit, something stirs in him. Something compels him. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. He prayed this prayer. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Can you imagine I mean, really, can you imagine? You've been waiting 62 years, refusing to give up, refusing to let go. And Simeon's like, Lord, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give up. I know everyone. Lord, I'm not. I'm going to hold fast, God. I'm going to believe your promise. And then one day, you get this nudge, and you can't explain it. It seems to come from somewhere within you, and, and, and you've just got to go to church. Right? And you, you get yourself to church, and you're standing there, and you look across the courtyard, and there's this young couple, and they're holding this baby. And in that moment, you know that you know that you know that that is the answer to the promise you've been waiting for for 62 years. Can you imagine? So he goes up to this couple, and they they place in his hands the Christ child. And there he is, holding with his own hands the answer to the promise. See, in that moment, I think Simeon knew hope in a way that he had never known it before. He held in his arms the very hope that had been promised to him. And the only response he can muster up in that moment is a prayer, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making good on your promise. See, for Simeon, for Simeon, it was God's faithfulness in the past that motivated his hope for the future. Do you see that? This is what Luke is wanting us to see. Simeon was not under any illusion. He knew the story of Abraham and Sarah. It was God's faithfulness in the past that motivated him to be for his hope in the future. God, I'm going to be faithful because I know you were faithful to your promise to Abraham and Sarah, just as you were faithful to your promise to Moses, just as you were faithful to Jacob and Rebekah and Naomi and David. Lord, I will not give up my hope in you. And the challenge for us, the invitation for us this Advent season is the same. It's the same for Christians today. You see, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is not optimism. It is not a positive outlook on life or good vibes, as as, as great as these things may be. 
It's not even the, the hope that things will go well for us, that circumstances will turn out for us in our favor. Christian hope is based on one thing and one thing alone, the person of Jesus, the life and resurrection of Jesus. And this is why the New Testament writers loved to talk about Jesus as our living hope. Our hope is alive today, literally. For the Christian, hope, hope is confidence that when we wait on God, he will make good on his promise. And that's what Advent is all about. Yes, we have welcomed baby Jesus into this world. Yes, baby Jesus grew up to become adult Jesus who taught and loved and lived and laid down his life for us and was raised from the dead and returned to be with his father in heaven. But the hope of Advent does not stop in the manger. The hope of Advent is that one day, because he has promised, Jesus will return to restore all that is broken and wrong in this world. And some would say this hope is crazy. This hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. And maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't just a feeling or an emotion. It's a choice to trust in a God to bring about a future that is as surprising and as amazing as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to a risen Jesus in order to look forward to a coming king. And so we wait. We wait, but we wait with hope. So how about you today? As we begin this Advent series together, how how would you rate your hope meter today? Give me me a thumb, give me a thumb. Like is low on the hope meter, kind of middle, high? I mean, where, where, where are you in your hope meter, right? What what rating are you giving this sermon right now, right? Because the truth is, the truth is, God wants to come and build in you hope this year. You do not have to live in despair. You do not have to live in desperation. We are invited to look back at God's faithfulness so that we can look forward in anticipation with hope. And where do you need him to come and bring that hope? For some of us, it may begin just by realizing that that hope is a person. Maybe your prayer this morning simply needs to be, God, would you reveal yourself to me in the same way you did to Simeon? Would you allow me to experience holding you in my own hands, even as I know you are holding me? Some of us, we've never made that choice. We've never prayed that prayer. Others of us, we're facing a situation right now. We've got some ice cream right out front, and we know that this is not the right time. We know this is not, and yet we, we almost can't help ourselves. We've grown tired in our waiting. And maybe our prayer just needs to be, Lord, would you renew my strength? Would you renew my hope to wait and trust you? And still others of us are just, well, it, it's 2020, and we... We just look around and all we see, all we see is negativity. We feel no hope. And maybe all it is for you this morning is to be reminded that God has not given up on this world and he has not given up on you. And he is coming again to make right, to restore all that is wrong and broken in his creation and all that is broken in you. So what prayer might you need to make to Jesus 
this morning. Can we do that now together? Father, I'm so thankful for this story of Simeon and Anna. The example of two who waited and trusted and held on to you even when it seemed like there was no hope. And God, today, in the same way that you filled Simeon with that hope when he held Jesus in his own hands, would you grace us again with your presence? Would you grace us again with your spirit? Would you strengthen our hope in you today, we pray? Lord, we don't want to live in despair. We don't want to live without the hope that you give. And especially this year, Lord, more than ever before, we need it. We know that you alone are the one who can give us that hope. Would you come and fill us again this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.